Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 68 of the show, and it's another information-packed episode for you. In men's college basketball, March Madness has finished its first two rounds. We have arrived at the Sweet 16. We'll uh, recap how everything's gone down so far and kind of preview the Sweet 16 matchups that we have uh, upcoming this weekend, along with the Elite Eight matchups that will follow that. And uh, in the NBA, we're quickly approaching the playoffs. We'll do a not a standings update. We'll do more of a, a playoff preview of how the current playoff situation looks. In the NHL, we will do a standings update. We got about a month left of the regular season there in the NHL. And in the NFL and Major League Baseball, we've got a lot of free agent news and some more major trades that have gone down. And so we'll get you caught up on all of that. Of course, some PGA Tour golf, which is actually where we're going to start. This past weekend's tournament was the Valspar Championship, and that was held at the Innisbrook Resort, the Copperhead Course. It was in Palm Harbor, Florida, par 71, distance 7,340 yards. This tournament was the fourth and final leg of the Florida Swing uh, before the tour heads over to Texas for a couple of weeks. And the course itself there, the Copperhead course at Innisbrook, uh, has a tough three-hole stretch, very similarly to what we saw at uh, at PGA National a few weeks ago with the Bear Trap. Uh, Innisbrook has a three-hole stretch. Uh, I believe it's the final three holes. It was uh, It's called the Snake Pit. Uh, very tight fairways. Uh, got a par three sandwiched in there, uh, you know, two par fours, uh, but the par three played over 200 yards, so it was a very challenging end to that course. Uh, the field for this one was certainly above average. We had 20 of the top 50 ranked players in the world out there teeing it up, including five of the top 10. Those would be Colin Morikawa, Victor Hovland, Xander Schauffele, and Justin Thomas. And this tournament was pretty much as good as advertised, uh, it went in actually to a playoff hole between Sam Burns and Davis Riley. Now, Sam Burns had actually won this tournament last year. He was your 2021 Valspar champion, and Davis Riley was making his 25th career start on the PGA Tour. Uh, they both they, they played the, the par 4 18th hole. They both parred that, then they moved over to the par 4 16th hole, and Sam Burns made a long putt, probably in the neighborhood of about 25 feet or so, to make birdie on that. And uh, Davis Riley was uh, had to basically tr- chip in for uh, a birdie. He was off the green on his second shot, and he did not hole out. So Sam Burns was your winner at the 2022 Valspar Championship. It was his third career PGA Tour victory. 
course, two of those have been here at Innisbrook. And it was his third victory uh, since the 2021 Valspar Championship. All three of his victories have come in the last 12 months. And Patrick Cantlay is the only other golfer on tour to win three events in that same time frame. And uh, just Sam Burns moved up to number 10 in the world rankings with that win. Uh, He has really been playing some damn good golf over the last year. Uh, Just He's one of those guys that's consistently near the top of the leaderboard. And uh, he did so in this thing. uh, He went, uh, opened with a 7-under 64, rattled off back-to-back 4-under 67s in rounds 2 and 3, and then closed with a 2-under 69, good enough for 17-under par. Now, Davis Riley was also 17-under par, and he took a little bit of a different route. He went 6-under in his first round, 3-under in the second round. He shot 9-under 62 in round 3 to be the 54-hole leader, and then shot a 1-over 72 on Sunday. He did so because he had a triple bogey, on uh, one of the holes on the front nine, I believe it uh, it, it was a par five. It was hole, hole five is what it was. He got an eight on the par five fifth and just made a mess of it. And, of course, if he even just double bogeys that or bogeys that, he wins by a shot or two. But uh, props to Davis Riley, the rookie on tour. Like I said, 25th career start, hanging in there with Sam Burns, who's proving to be uh, a veteran, even though he's still a young golfer. So those two were at 17-under. There was a two-way tie for third between Justin Thomas and Matthew Neesmith. Both of them were at 16-under par. Now, Matthew Neesmith, he shot a 10-under 61 in round two to be your 36-hole leader. Just an unbelievable round of golf there for Matthew Neesmith. There was a two-way tie for fifth between Matt Fitzpatrick and Brian Harmon. Though those guys were at 14 under, and then there were five, six guys at uh, 12 under par, which was T7. That was Sahith Thigala, Stuart Sink, Kevin Streelman, Robert Streb, and Adam Hadwin. Brooks Kepka was at 11 under par, and that was thanks to a six under 65 in his final round. So, uh, as you can see, uh, there were some there were some big names near the top of that leaderboard. Sahith Thigala is another young kid that's making a name for himself. Uh, he will win an event on tour this year. It's just a matter of when, not if. So, it was a pretty good tournament. And if I'm being completely honest, uh, it was overshadowed with March Madness going on this weekend. So. Uh, I didn't have a whole lot of time to watch this event. I did watch, um, I, you know, I did watch a, a lot of the final round uh, in between the games and commercial breaks and whatnot for basketball. I was trying to stay up on that, but um, yeah, it was still a good tournament. Copperhead's a tough course, and Sam Burns has it figured out. He's he's played around fifty under par uh, on the par fives in the last two years. Uh, since he's been playing this course, which is is really something special. But, um, yeah, this weekend's tournament, it's another good one. It is the World Golf Championship Dell Technology Match Play. That's held at the Austin Country Club here in Austin, Texas. It's another par 71. Distance is 7,108 yards. This is an absolutely loaded field. All right, we have 63 of the world's top 69 ranked golfers. 
uh, set to tee it up here in Austin. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau returns to the field after an extended absence due to an injury. Uh, we have all top five players in the world rankings uh, in the field. John Rahm, Colin Morikawa, Victor Hovland, Patrick Cantlay, and Scotty Scheffler. Uh, but there are a few big-name guys that are not going to participate in this event uh, to include Rory McIlroy, Hideki Matsuyama, Harris English, Cameron Smith, the Players' Championship winner. And on Monday this past week, Sam Burns uh, withdrew from this tournament, so he will not be out there. Uh, but this tournament is very cool. It actually is a Wednesday through Sunday uh, tournament, so we get an extra day of golf. We got five days of golf. It's in Austin, Texas, so the weather should be just fine. Now, how it's it's called Dell Technology Match Play because there is it's basically a series of matches. It's not your your regular format that we would see. And how it is, it's uh, in the theme of March Madness, right? Uh, we're in the middle of that, so uh, the PGA has implemented this tournament in which is a 64-person bracket. Uh, the, the players um, are divided into uh, f- 16 four-player groups. All right, Players in the field will be assigned a seed number, which is determined by their rankings in the official World Golf Rankings as of uh, the Monday this past week. The highest-ranked player in the field is seed number one, and the lowest-ranked player is seed number four. Or, or uh, 64, rather. Okay, they're placed into four pools of 16 players. All right, A, B, C, and D is how they're labeled. Uh, the top 16 players, uh, or the 16 players, will be the top players in each of the 16 groups. The number one seed is the top player in group one. The number two seed is the top player in group two, and so on for the final two. And the remaining players in each group will be picked randomly. All right. Um, they, they actually the bracket has already been released, so those matchups have already been determined. The bracket is already out. You can Google the uh, the PGA Tours bracket for this uh, World Golf Championship, Dell Technologies Match Play, and so the first uh, the first few rounds. All right, is group play. It's round robin, and it's a one on one match. It's eighteen hole matches. All right, and uh, they're played either to a conclusion or to a half. Uh, matches will not be extended beyond the 18 holes. Okay, so Wednesday is round one. There's 32 matches, all right? 64 players, 32 matches. Same thing with round two on Thursday and round three on Friday. So basically, if you look at the bracket, they're in groups of four. Every golfer in that group plays a match against each of the other golfers in their group. The winner of that group by record uh, the best record out of their four round-robin matches moves on to the next round in the bracket. Similarly, again, this is basically a, a carbon copy of college basketball. All right, so the like I said, the player in the group, uh, in each group with the highest point total at the end of group play advances to the 16-player single elimination matches. And in the event that two or more players in a group are equal with the highest point total, a stroke play Hole-by-hole playoff will determine the player that advances to the 16-player single elimination matches. All right? So the group play play, hole-by-hole playoffs are going to be conducted after the matches in the group are complete and after all of the group play matches have started the third round. All right? So uh, they're going to start those play uh, play. Playoff holes, hole-by-hole playoffs are going to be starting uh, on hole 1 and going through hole 18 as necessary, all right? So once we get to those uh, single elimination matches, 
There are also 18 whole matches played to a conclusion. There's no halved matches. And then, uh, so that's all through Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, all right? The first three rounds will determine the, uh, the first uh, set of eliminations. Uh, round four begins on Saturday morning. There's eight matches, all right? So we have, uh, this is your sweet 16, so to speak. There's 16 golfers, eight matches, head-to-head, same thing, 18 whole matches. The winner advances to the quarterfinals, all right? And uh, again, we have the playoff match format through that uh, through that round four, which actually starts on hole ten and goes through eight hole eighteen and is repeated if necessary. Uh, sa- that's Saturday morning, round four. Okay, Saturday afternoon is your quarterfinal matchup, the Elite Eight. So the Sweet Sixteen is Saturday morning. The Elite Eight is Saturday afternoon. Same thing. Winners advance to the semifinal matches. All of the all of the Elite Eight matches are also 18-hole matches, all right? Playoff holes and rounds five are extended starting on holes 12 through 18 and repeated as necessary. And then round six begins on Sunday morning. You have your final four on Sunday morning. You have two semifinal matches, same thing. The winner of those matches moves on to the championship match, all right? But if there's a tie, the playoff hole-by-hole playoff for Sunday morning's Final Four. Uh, They start on hole 12 and go through hole 18 and repeat it if necessary. And then Sunday afternoon, your consolation match for third place tees off first, all right? And then the championship match, the final two, uh, championship game here, uh, they tee off after the consolation match. Those are also 18-hole matches, and the playoff holes are holes 12 through 18 and repeated if necessary. So it's a very cool format for this thing. You can fill out, if you're into golf, I highly suggest you fill out a bracket. Even if you just print it out, fill it out, you can do it online to be competitive if you want. You can put money on this thing. Um, I'm definitely going to be tuned into this this weekend, more so than I was the uh, Valspar Championship last week. I know we had the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight this weekend in college basketball, but uh, I'm still going to be tuned in uh, to the World Golf Championship Dell Technologies match play. Have a very elite field, uh, very unique format, and that just makes for a good weekend of golf. So if you are a golf fan, and even if you're a mild golf uh, fan, so to speak, uh, tune into this because the event is is pretty pretty interesting with that format it's not something you get to watch every week so it is a little change of pace all in the theme of march madness and speaking of march madness we will transition right into men's college basketball and that tournament that's going on Uh, i'm sure if you're listening to this podcast you like sports enough you've probably caught several of the games this past weekend uh, and it has been as good as advertised Uh, last week on the preview episode i talked about how this this year is pretty much anybody's tournament to win. Uh, it's more wide open this year, I think, than in any of the years uh, recently that I can remember. And uh, you just look at the bracket, and it was one of the tougher brackets to fill out. You knew there was going to be some upsets. You just didn't know where they were going to come from. And uh, I talked about a few key points on last week's episode, and I'll just remind you about those and update those. Uh, one of the th- the, the key notes was that a seven seed or lower has made the final four in seven of the last eight tournaments. 
and that is still very much in play in this tournament. We have five such teams. We have five teams in the Sweet 16, okay, because we've made it to the Sweet 16. The round of 64 and the round of 32 have been complete. So we've arrived at the Sweet 16, and there are five of the 16 teams that are a seven seed or lower, all right? Uh, there's an eight seed in North Carolina. There's a number 10 seed, Miami. Number 11 seed, Michigan, although I don't know how the hell Michigan's an 11 seed. Uh, another 11 seed, Iowa State. And a number 15 seed has reached the Sweet 16, the St. Peter's Peacocks, all right? we Four of those uh, five teams are double-digit seeds. So 25% of the Sweet 16 this year are double-digit seeds. And the only other team that's lower than a seven is an eight seed. All right. So a lot of higher seeds uh, in this thing uh, still at the Sweet 16. The second key point that I mentioned last week was that all four number one seeds have made the final four just once. And I told you last week that this was not going to happen this year. We were not going to see all four number one seeds advance to the final four and that turned out to be correct because we've already lost one of the four number one seeds. We'll get into that in just a minute. The other key points that I brought up were that a number 12 seed has won a game in 31 of 36 tournaments, and a number 13 seed has won a game in 15 of the last 20 tournaments. Well, this year we actually had two number 12 teams. Uh, two 12-seeded teams win a game in the first round this year. Uh, the first one was Richmond beating Iowa in the Midwest region, and over in the West region, New Mexico State beat UConn, all right? So we had two number 12 seeds win their first round matchups. We did not have a number 13 seed win a game this year, although number 13 seed Chattanooga almost pulled off the upset over number four, Illinois, in their first round game. Chattanooga literally led the entire game. Illinois did not take their first lead of the game until about 45 seconds left. All right. It was kind of a rip your heart out moment for those kids from Chattanooga. Um, now, this episode is called Brackets Busted uh, because that's exactly what happened in that first round. Uh, basically, it started off once number 12 seed Richmond beat number 5 seed Iowa uh, in just the sixth game of the tournament, there were only 3.1% of the 18 million brackets on ESPN that remained perfect after that game. Now, that win in particular was Richmond's ninth career NCAA tournament win as a 12 seed or worse, which is the most of all time. So they're perennially a 12 or lower seed, and they've won nine games in tournament history as a 12 or lower seed. Uh, but the, the story of the first two rounds, and I mentioned them a minute ago, has been the St. Peter's Peacocks. Okay, They entered the tournament as a number 15 seed in the East region. They had a first-round matchup against number two seed Kentucky. All right, Nobody, uh, unless you go to St. Peter's University, or play on the St. Peter's University basketball team, had St. Peter's winning that game. Nobody, okay? Um, I, you listening to this podcast, I guarantee you you wrote down Kentucky on that line there because I know I did, all right? The game was really close, and St. Peter's actually jumped out to a pretty good lead 
And uh, when it was close at halftime, you're thinking, oh, shit, they might actually be in this game. And then as it as the game went on, uh, it, got, it still stayed close. The game would actually go into overtime. And then St. Peter's came out victorious in overtime with an 85-79 win. That gave St. Peter's their first ever NCAA tournament victory. And it snapped Kentucky's 30-game tournament win streak against double-digit seeds, which is very impressive. Uh, it was also the 10th time we've seen a number 15 seed beat a number 2 seed in the first round. All right? So St. Peter's moves on, all right? And then they continued their Cinderella story by beating Murray State, seventh-seeded Murray State, by 10 points in the second round to advance to the Sweet 16. Now, the Peacocks of St. Peter's are just the third-ever 15 seed to make it to the Sweet 16, joining last year's Oral Roberts team and the 2013 Florida Gulf Coast team. All right, that this St. Peter's team is just unbelievable. They they uh, they play so loose and relaxed. There's no pressure. Nobody expects them to win. They didn't. Nobody expected them to win the first game. They won it. Nobody expected them to win the second game. They won it. And the coach of the St. Peter's Peacocks is Shaheen Holloway, and he was asked uh, after his win over Kentucky uh, if he was nervous about you know, moving on and playing in the tournament. And he said his response literally was nervous. Why? It's just basketball. What a great attitude to have because he has put that in his kid's head and they play with that same attitude. They don't play nervous. They're super relaxed. And that's a dangerous combination. Um, uh, Coach Holloway also said uh, he was asked about their team's uh, toughness and and the, the willingness to play a, a physical style of basketball. And he said that his kid's are all from New York or New Jersey, all right? St. Peter's is in New Jersey, and uh, most of his kids are from either New Jersey or New York, and that they all grew up with a tough mindset. They're tough kids, and so being physical on the basketball floor is not something they're worried about. And again, that's just a dangerous combination to have that attitude, all right? And nobody expected them to be this far. Uh, They have a third-round matchup in the Sweet 16 against Purdue. We'll get into that in a second. But a cool side note here about St. Peter's, they are the first team from New Jersey in the Sweet 16 since the year 2000. And that team was Seton Hall. The starting point guard on that Seton Hall team was none other than St. Peter's head coach, Shaheen Holloway. So pretty interesting fact there. Uh, I mentioned that we lost our first number one seed over the weekend, and that was Baylor. The Baylor Bears came in as the number one seed in the East region, and they lost to the number eight seed North Carolina team All right, in the second round. They, Baylor smoked Norfolk State in their first game, but then lost to North Carolina in the second round. Now, that game was absolute banana land. All right, Baylor got down by as much as 25 points at one point in the second half before they came just roaring back. They ended up tying the game somehow. It went into overtime. And you you think, if you're watching this game, you're thinking, all right, Baylor has all the momentum. They're certainly winning the game. There's absolutely zero chance that that Baylor loses this game. Well, North Carolina had other plans, all right? They were able to pull away in overtime, 93-86 victory. So the defending champion Baylor Bears are out of the tournament. They became the 21st number one seed to lose in the round of 32. And then on the other side of things, North Carolina's victory was their ninth 
tournament, uh, ninth tournament win against the number one seed in tournament history, which ties Duke for the most since the seeding began in 1979. But overall, for the first two rounds, there were an absolute ton of games that came down to the last possession or went into overtime. We saw six overtime games in the first two rounds, which is the most overtime games through the first two rounds since 2014. So a lot of close games coming down to the last possession, a lot of overtime games, and just an absolute insane tournament that we've seen so far. Now, I did mention a little bit ago that there were over 18 million brackets submitted on ESPN. After Thursday's 16 games, there were only 161 perfect brackets. You had six more games played on Friday, and there were only 17 perfect brackets through 22 games. 17 perfect brackets out of 18 million. And then by the time Friday's 16 games had been completed, there were exactly zero perfect brackets remaining on ESPN entries. Over 18 million brackets, and there were zero perfect after the first round was complete. Uh, just an unbelievable weekend in March Madness. Now, that, like I said, that was just the ESPN stats. Um, I, I, I'm sure CBS and whoever else uh, did not have any perfect brackets as well. But uh, <clears throat> that brings us to the Sweet 16. <clears throat> we'll go over the, the matchups real quick. And that will start off in the West region, the left side of your bracket. Uh, the first Sweet 16 matchup in the West is number one seed Gonzaga versus number four seeded Arkansas. All right, um, Arkansas did not shoot the ball well in their last game; only put up 53 points. However, Gonzaga they have struggled in the first half of both of their games. They did come out victorious in the first round by 21 points, thanks to a pretty epic second half. They did the exact same thing against Memphis in the second round. gave Memphis gave Gonzaga a dose. All they could handle, okay? And Gonzaga could not get it together in the first half. Drew Timmy went crazy in the second half. I think he had about 20 points in the second half, including Gonzaga's first, I think, eight or ten points in that second half. But Gonzaga pulled away for a four-point win there against Memphis. But uh, Gonzaga, for as, as talented as that team is and as many good shooters as they have, they are absolutely horrid on the free throw line. Uh, you want to beat Gonzaga? Send them to the free throw line because their free throw percentage is uh, right around 50% for the tournament through two rounds, which is horrid. So uh, that's the first game. I'm going to, I have Gonzaga. I did pre- correctly predict that matchup in my bracket. I, I took Gonzaga to win the national title, so I do have Gonzaga moving on there. And then the other Sweet 16 matchup in the West region number two seeded Duke versus number three seeded Texas Tech. Uh, Duke uh, was able to fend off Michigan State's fierce rally there in round two. Uh, Coach Mike Shashevsky got his 1200th career victory, which is the most of all time. Uh, but they're running into a buzzsaw that is the Texas Tech Red Raiders. Uh, Texas Tech put up 97 points in their first-round matchup against Montana State. Had a little trouble with Notre Dame there in the second round. Got down for a little bit, but managed to come back and seal the deal there. Uh, if if Tech can play some defense, uh, they have a pretty good chance to win this game. Uh, Duke really has no interest in playing defense, so this could very well be a 
high scoring, one of the higher scoring games that we've seen. Uh, I did pick Duke. I did correctly pick this matchup in my bracket, and I picked Duke to win. <clears throat> Over in the East region, the bottom left-hand corner of your bracket, the first Sweet 16 matchup is the number eight seed North Carolina Tar Heels against the number four seed UCLA Bruins. Uh, UCLA had a little bit of trouble in the first round against Akron and uh, didn't really look all that great until the second half against St. Mary's in the second round, but they pulled away. Of course, they made it to the Final Four last year as an 11 seed. And then North Carolina, we just talked about them. Uh, they beat Marquette by 32 points the first round and then defeated Baylor in that crazy game. Uh, I, I'm going to pick UCLA to win that game. I, you know, That, that one's going to be a real good game. I, I can certainly see Carolina winning, but I'm going to take UCLA in that one. And then the other matchup in the East, number three seed Purdue Boilermakers against the number 15 seed St. Peter's Peacocks. How do you not pick St. Peter's, right? Um, they've won their first two games. Why the hell can't they beat Purdue? Uh, the problem is that Purdue uh, is is very good. They looked the part of the number one team that they were at several points throughout this year uh, against Texas in the round two matchup. Uh, they have, you know, Zach Eady, Travion Williams, uh, those two guys, the big men, can get it done. Uh, St. Peter's does not have the size to compete with that. And then Jaden Ivey, he can drop 25 points with his eyes closed. Uh, I do like Purdue to win that game. Uh, I, I like the story of St. Peter's, but I think their Cinderella story ends at the hands of the Boilermakers. Over in the Midwest region, the top right corner of your bracket, the first matchup there is number one, Kansas, against number four, Providence. Providence has looked really good through two games. They beat a really hot South Dakota State team in the first round that had won 21 straight games coming into the tournament, and then they dispatched the Richmond Spiders in the second round by 28 points. So uh, Providence is good. They're well coached. They have uh, some big athletic players. Uh, but Kansas is Kansas. You know, Oche Abaji is in the running for the National Player of the Year Award. He was the Big 12 Player of the Year. The Big 12 is proving to be the best conference so far this year in the tournament. And uh, I like Kansas to beat Providence in that one. Uh, the, the other matchup in the Midwest region is the number 11 seed Iowa State Cyclones against the number 10 seed Miami Hurricanes. Now, Miami... Of course, they, they beat USC in the first round by two points. Very close game. And then the second round, they just completely dominated number two-seeded Auburn. They won by 18 points over Auburn. Uh, not many people picked Miami to beat Auburn, all right? I'm just, you know, right there for what it's worth. Uh, most people had Auburn uh, going at least to the Elite Eight. But uh, Miami took care of them uh, in, in pretty good fashion. And then over on the other side, Iowa State. They beat uh, a, a tough LSU team in the first round, and then they played a nasty Wisconsin team in the second round. Now, Wisconsin didn't help themselves. Wisconsin, I think, only made three three-pointers out of uh, 27 attempts or something. Um, it just was completely a horrid performance by Wisconsin. They only put up 49 points, Wisconsin did, and Iowa State was, was able to outlast them and win by five. So, uh, I like the Big 12 uh, winner there, the Big 12 representative there in that game. Give me Iowa State to beat Miami. And uh, that's in the, that's Midwest is the bottom right corner of the bracket. Top right corner is the South region. Okay, 
This is the fourth and final region. Uh, your first matchup, number one, Arizona, against number five, Houston. Start off with Arizona. They beat Wright State in the first round by 17 and then played just an epic game against TCU in the second round. Um, Benedict Matherin is just a bucket. He tied the game with 12 seconds left. Looked like TCU was going to win. Um, Arizona had a basket called off at the buzzer to send the game to overtime, and overtime they hung on. So Arizona moves on there. Houston, on the other hand, uh, they, they smashed UAB in the first round and then played a tough Illinois team in the second round. Kofi Coburn, just a monster inside there. They were able to keep him in check. They actually beat Illinois by 15 points. So the Cougars come into this thing looking really, really good. I would not be surprised if Houston won, uh, but I picked Arizona to play Gonzaga in the national title game, so I will take uh, Arizona in that. I did correctly pick this matchup as well. Then the other matchup in the South region is the number two seed Villanova Wildcats against the number 11 seed Michigan Wolverines. Now, I did mention, I don't know how the hell Michigan is uh, an 11 seed. This is their fifth consecutive Sweet 16 appearance. Uh, they beat tough Colorado State team that they had to come from behind to do, but they beat them by 12, moved on and played the SEC champion Tennessee uh, Volunteers and beat the Volunteers by eight points. Looked really good in doing so. Hunter Dickinson is a problem, a big problem. Villanova has not seen a team like Michigan in their regular season or so far in the tournament. Now, Villanova did beat Delaware by 20 in the first round. They did beat Ohio State by 10. Now, Ohio State is more closely uh, a resemblance of Michigan than probably any other team they've played just because they play Big Ten basketball. But Villanova looked really good in that win against Ohio State. Never really um, let it get out of control. Uh, I'm going to take the Michigan Wolverines to upset Villanova in this one just because uh, Hunter Dickinson is he is seven foot one and he can shoot threes, he can rebound. Uh, the guy's just a machine. I think Jawan Howard has his boys ready to go. Uh, not that Jay Wright won't have the Wildcats ready to go, but uh, for some reason, I just like Michigan to advance to the Elite Eight. So that's where we are in the tournament so far. Uh, this weekend, of course, like I said, we'll play the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight. So uh, by next week's episode, we will know who the Elite Eight are, and we will do uh, get you caught up on what went down this weekend and uh, take a look at how the Elite Eight and the Final Four matchups might shape up. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League and do a standings update here in the NHL. Uh, the standings update, though, is not the most important news from this past week. That, of course, is the trade deadline that has passed. We'll get you caught up on all of the noteworthy trades in the Around the Islands segment. But uh, for, as far as standings go, most teams have played between 62 and 64 games. So we got uh, about 18 to 20 games or so left for these teams. And the last day of the regular season is Friday, April 29th. All right, so that's coming up in just over a month. So we got a little bit of time. We'll just kind of run through these now. These standings updates, you know, we kind of have a more clear playoff picture of what we're looking at uh, after the trade deadline has gone down. We'll start off in the Eastern Conference, the Metropolitan Division. Carolina Hurricanes are up top there with 88 points. New York Rangers are second with 85 points. Pittsburgh Penguins also have 85 points. They're in third currently uh, due to two less regulation wins. Um, 
Both of those teams, though, the Rangers and the Penguins, have won seven out of their last ten. Over in the Atlantic Division, the Florida Panthers are up top with 90 points, although uh, forward Jonathan Huberdeau moved up to second all-time in Florida Panthers franchise history and goals scored. He's having just a remarkable year, certainly in the conversation for the Hart Trophy, which is the league MVP. Uh, But with the good comes the bad. Um, Captain Aaron Ekblad has been placed on long-term IR for the rest of the regular season with an injury. Uh, He is expected back at some point in the first round of the playoffs, but uh, I think Florida is comfortably, especially with the acquisitions that they made at the deadline, they're comfortably in that first spot. They're six points clear of the second-place team, the Tampa Bay Lightning, and seven points clear of the Toronto Maple Leafs, who sit third in the Atlantic. The wildcard teams in the East are pretty much set, Um, at least the, the positions are. The these two teams may jockey with uh, the other teams in the division, but currently the Boston Bruins hold the top wild card spot with 83 points, although their captain, Patrice Bergeron, he's been placed on injured reserve as well. They've not given a timetable for his return, uh, but the Bruins are still uh, 13, or excuse me, uh, 16 points clear of falling out of a wild card spot. And then the second-place wildcard team at the moment is the Washington Capitals with 80 points, so they're three points back of Boston, and they're five points back of uh, Pittsburgh and New York there in the Metropolitan Division. Uh, with Capitals forward Alex Ovechkin, he scored his 40th goal of the year this past weekend, which makes uh, 12 career seasons with 40 or more goals. That ties Wayne Gretzky for the most such seasons of all time. We talked last week how he's currently third in NHL history and goals scored uh, has a chance to catch Gordie Howe uh, either this season possibly early next season but um, that's pretty much the Eastern Conference the Columbus Blue Jackets are 13 points back of the Capitals the Islanders are 19 points back uh, of the Capitals for those wild card spots so those two teams are going to be out uh, of contention at this point with uh, a few games remaining that we have so Eastern Conference is pretty much wrapped up in terms of the actual teams that will be in the playoffs. It's just a matter of uh, order and seeding at this point. Over in the Western Conference, though, uh, this thing is still kind of very fluid. The Central Division, the Colorado Avalanche, are up top there with 95 points. Uh, Four-game winning streak going on. Just uh, the best team in hockey, have been all year, will continue to be. They made a couple of good acquisitions at the trade deadline that will keep them firmly in the driver's seat in the Western Conference. The Minnesota Wild and the Nashville Predators currently sit second and third in the Central. They both have 78 points, all right? Uh, And then with Nashville, Philip Forsberg became the Nashville Predators' all-time leading goal scorer with his 211th goal scored this past weekend. So um, he's was talked about as maybe a, a piece to trade at the deadline. He did not get traded, so... Nashville's still firmly in the playoff mix there, uh, so they kept Forsberg. Over in the Pacific Division, the Calgary Flames are up top there with 84 points. They're eight points clear of the Los Angeles Kings, who are in second, and 11 points clear of the Edmonton Oilers, or nine points clear, rather, of the Edmonton Oilers, who sit third in the Pacific at 75 points. So uh, that order is probably going to continue to get mixed up. Um then you talk about the wild card teams. Top wild card team at the moment is the St. Louis Blues. They have 77 points. They're just one point back of Nashville and Minnesota in the Central. 
And then the second wildcard team at the moment is the Vegas Golden Knights with 72 points. They're three points back of Edmonton and four points back of Los Angeles there in the Pacific. So they could do some switching around uh, as we get closer to the end of the year. But right now, Vegas is the second wildcard team. Uh, the Western Conference, there's really only three team, three other teams that can compete for a wildcard spot or a playoff spot. The Dallas Stars have 71 points, but the Stars, as it sits now, have four games in hand on the Vegas Golden Knights, so they could certainly catch them. Stars have 71 points. Uh, Winnipeg Jets have 68 points, so they're three points back of Dallas, four points back of Vegas. They're still in the mix, uh, not not real confident in their uh, chances to make the playoffs, but still, nonetheless, they are alive. And then the final team in the West with any kind of hope would be the Vancouver Canucks with 68 points. Okay, same with Winnipeg. Um, Anaheim and San Jose, the Ducks and the Sharks, they've, I've included them in the mix uh, over the last several episodes, but the Ducks kind of were sellers at the deadline. Don't see them going anywhere. Uh, and then the Sharks... Uh, I didn't. They didn't make any move that would put them over the top to with sixty two points to climb back into that and make up that ten point deficit that they currently sit at from a wild card spot. So, uh, like I said, Eastern Conference, we know who's going to be in, just a matter of order. And then in the West, um, we don't really know the exact eight teams at this moment that are going to represent the Western Conference in the playoffs. So uh, it's going to be an exciting last uh, month of the year, and we'll we'll keep you updated as we go along here through the rest of the season. But we'll move on to the National Basketball Association, and we're going to do a playoff picture preview instead of a standings update. And what that is, we'll go through each conference. Of course, there's eight playoff seeds up for grabs. The top six at the end of the regular season clinch uh, a berth into the playoffs, and seeds seven through ten in each conference go to they call a play-in tournament. And that features two games, uh, the 7th plays the 8th seed at the end of the season, and the ninth plays the 10th seed. The winner of the 9-10 game advances to the play-in tournament final, and the uh, winner of the 7-8 matchup goes to straight to the 7th seed. The loser plays the winner from the 9-10 matchup in the play-in tournament championship game. So how that looks currently... And the winner of that play-in tournament championship game would clinch the eighth seed. Uh, so how that looks currently in the Western Conference. Top seed at the moment, the Phoenix Suns. They uh, do not would not have an opponent right now as we they would play the eighth seed. The second seed currently is the Memphis Grizzlies. They would play the seventh seed, all right, whoever won that original 7-8 matchup. The three seed is the Golden State Warriors. They are slated to take on the Denver Nuggets. As the sixth seed, as it currently sits, and then this series would just be insane. It would be number four Utah Jazz against the number five seeded Dallas Mavericks. Now those two teams look solidly like they're going to be four and five. They may flip flop. The Jazz are one game in front of the Mavericks currently, so we'll have to see on that. But uh, I think a lot of these Western Conference series are pretty much, uh, pretty much wrapped up. Golden State may catch Memphis. But uh, nobody's catching Phoenix. So uh, as it sits right now, the 7-8 matchup would be the 7th seed Minnesota Timberwolves against the 8th seed Los Angeles Clippers. The winner of that game would play the number 2 seed Memphis Grizzlies. The loser of that game would go to the uh, play-in tournament championship against 
whoever wins between number nine, the Los Angeles Lakers, and number 10, New Orleans Pelicans. Now, with the Lakers, LeBron James, this past week, he passed Carl Malone for second all-time on the NBA scoring list with 36,929 points. And just based on a a point-per-game basis, he's going to certainly pass Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for number one on the all-time scoring list sometime next season. But um, So that's how it would play out. Basically, the winner of the the T-Wolves and Clippers game would go to play Memphis. The loser would play the winner of the Lakers-Pelicans game. And then whoever won the game between the Lakers and Pelicans uh, or... Uh, and the uh, the Timberwolves and Clippers would play the um, Phoenix Suns in the first round of the Western Conference playoffs. Now, in the West, uh, the Pelicans are currently the 10th seed, but the San Antonio Spurs are two games behind them, and the Portland Trailblazers are two and a half games behind them. Now, with Portland, they announced that Damian Lillard is going to miss the rest of the year with an injury. So you can pretty much write Portland off. I don't see them making the playoffs without Lillard. Uh, so the Spurs are really the only team that can catch the Pelicans, uh, and they're still two games back. So um, I would look for New Orleans, especially with C.J. McCollum there with and Brandon uh, Ingram. Uh, those guys are going to keep the Pelicans in that 10 spot, possibly the ninth spot. I mean, the Lakers are, are only uh, a game in front of the Pelicans, so it's very possible the Lakers might be the 10th seed entering the play-in tournament. But the same format goes for the Eastern Conference. At the moment, the top seed is the Miami Heat. Second seed's the Philadelphia 76ers. All right, the third seed's the Milwaukee Bucks, and they are slated to play the sixth seed Cleveland Cavaliers at the moment. That would be a damn good series, the way that Cleveland's been playing. Uh, And then the other series is the four seed Boston Celtics against the five seed Chicago Bulls. All right, so the uh, 7-8 matchup in the East is the seventh seeded Toronto Raptors against the eighth seeded Brooklyn Nets. And the 9-10 game would be the ninth-seeded Charlotte Hornets against the 10th-seeded Atlanta Hawks. Now, in the Eastern Conference, uh, the Hawks are the 10th seed. The Washington Wizards are five games back. Oh, and the Knicks. The Wizards and the Knicks are both 30 and 41. They're both five games back of Atlanta. So I don't see the Wizards or the Knicks making up five games in the standings in the remaining 10 games that they have to play, or 11 games. So... Uh, you can pretty much write that, close the book on the Eastern Conference uh, with those teams that I just mentioned. They will be your 10 playoff play-in teams. So the winner of the Raptors-Nets game would automatically move on as the seventh seed playing the Philadelphia 76ers. The loser would go into that championship game against the winner of the Hornets and Hawks game. So whoever would win, uh, basically the, the Nets... We'll assume the Nets win that game, right? I think anybody might, especially on the road, they'd have Kyrie Irving if they were the 8th seed playing a 7th seed Toronto team. If the Nets move, the Raptors would then play the the winner of the Hornets-Hawks game, and then whoever won the Hornets-Hawks-slash-Raptors game would move on to the 8th seed to play the Miami Heat. So uh, interesting how the NBA does. I really like this format. I I actually think the NHL should adopt this format as well. Uh, with this play-in tournament, just makes it more competitive. Uh, your top six seeds, your six best teams in each conference are guaranteed a playoff spot, and then you let the the remaining four best teams duke it out for those final two spots. I just think it, it keeps it uh, fresh, it keeps it interesting, and uh, there's a little bit more to play for 
right there at the end of the season. So uh, that's currently how it looks in the NBA. Like I said, most teams have about 10 or 11 games left. Uh, so uh, only about uh, two weeks left, week and a half, two weeks left in the regular season. So by next week's episode, uh, this playoff picture should be even more clear than it already is. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island. That's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. And uh, it's a loaded version of this for you. NFL, MLB, NHL, tons of news with regards to free agency and trades. Uh, We're just going to jump into it. Starting off in the National Football League, uh, NFL offseason just continues to dominate the headlines and and rule the sports world. Um, Just shows you the NFL is king amongst the four major pro sports leagues. Uh, there were a few mega blockbuster deals that went down this past week, so we got to get into those. First one we'll talk about Cleveland Browns and the Houston Texans. And I mentioned on last week's episode that the Browns were reported to be out of the running for Deshaun Watson after meeting with him. And then uh, right after that, uh, Baker Mayfield, their current quarterback, uh, announced on social media some cryptic goodbye message and two days later, he requested a trade out of Cleveland. Well, right after last week's episode dropped, Deshaun Watson came out and said that he wanted to play for Cleveland. Now, I don't know what sort of punishment that is, uh, but uh, he chose that the Cleveland Browns is his preferred destination. So the Browns and the Texans agreed to a trade. Houston sent Deshaun Watson and a 2024 fifth-round pick to the Browns in exchange for f- three first-round picks each of the next three years, this year, the year after, and 2024, as well as a third-round pick in 2023 and a fourth-round pick in 2024. So five draft picks go to Houston for Deshaun Watson. Now, you'll notice Baker Mayfield was not included in that deal, and as of this recording, he's still on the Browns roster. Now, Mayfield said that his preferred destination would be the Indianapolis Colts. However, we'll talk about here shortly, the Colts made a quarterback trade of their own that did not involve the um, Cleveland quarterback. So now the Browns, they said they conducted extensive investigations into Deshaun Watson before trading for him, uh, which the attorney for all 22 women who have filed civil suits against Deshaun Watson for sexual misconduct stated that the Browns organization never reached out to him or any of his clients during this process. So not really sure how extensive the Browns' research was, but apparently it was good enough for them to, um, you know, make the trade, I guess. Now, immediately after that trade went down, the Browns and Deshaun Watson agreed to a five-year, $230 million deal that's fully guaranteed. It's the most guaranteed money uh, of any player in NFL history which I think is a bit excessive uh, for somebody who has not played in a year and a half. Sure, Deshaun Watson is a top-five quarterback when he's on the field and healthy, uh, but he's got he's got too much stuff going on right now. Not only has he not played in a year and a half, he still has all these civil suits pending. Now, the Harris County Sheriff's Office in Houston has said that he's not facing any criminal charges, uh, but he's still going to be subject to uh, personal conduct policy of the NFL. So I would expect that uh, he will be suspended for some games this year. But as far as the trade itself, it worked out good for both teams. Okay, Houston, uh, they get five draft picks, three first-rounders. They get an extra first-rounder in each of the next three drafts, something that they've not had very many of here, uh, draft picks here lately. So they get a bunch more draft picks to kind of help propel their rebuild. So it works out for Houston. And then Cleveland, of course, gets Watson, who 
uh, is certainly an upgrade over Baker Mayfield and keeps them fairly competitive in what is becoming an outrageous AFC conference. So after that craziness went down, <clears throat> the next big trade to go down was the Green Bay Packers and the Las Vegas Raiders. And this one was super deep. And the more time that's passed since the trade went down, the more info that we've come across as to the backstory of it. Uh, the Packers traded wide receiver Devontae Adams, all pro, to the Las Vegas Raiders in exchange for Las Vegas's first and second round picks in this year's draft. Okay, the 2022 draft in about a month. Uh, and at the same time the deal was getting announced, the Raiders uh, announced that they had signed Devontae Adams to a five-year, $141 million contract, $28 million per season, which makes Devontae Adams the highest-paid wide receiver in NFL history. The trade itself also reunites Devontae Adams with Derek Carr, who was his quarterback in college at uh, Fresno State. And... It was pretty much when the when the trade went down, the contract was announced at the same time, and I thought it was odd that both of those were released at the same time. But as time has gone on, we've we've come to find out why that was. Basically, Devontae Adams' agent confirmed that the Packers had offered Devontae Adams more money than than the contract that he had signed in Vegas. Now, remember, he had, Adams was franchise tagged by Green Bay and said he wasn't playing under the franchise tag. So he passed up more money in Green Bay to agree to a sign-and-trade with the Raiders, or a trade-and-sign, basically. And then also the other piece of info that came out was that Aaron Rodgers was reported to have been aware that Devontae Adams was not going to be a member of the Packers next season while he was negotiating his new contract that he just signed for three years, $150 million. And that, that contract was finalized about a week before the Devontae Adams trade went down. So Rodgers signed an extension with Green Bay knowing that Devontae Adams was not going to be part of that team, which I think is very interesting because those two were very close and a big reason why Green Bay has been as successful as they have been. And then the last piece of info to confirm that this was pretty much unofficially completed about a week or so prior to it actually going down was the fact that Devontae Adams had purchased a $12 million house in Las Vegas right next door to Derek Carr. And this this purchase went down about a week or two prior to the actual trade itself. So uh, we, we pretty much have found out <clears throat> that Adams knew he was on his way to Vegas. It just didn't break until uh, about a week after all that other stuff happened. And if those two trades, right, we just those are two massive trades that shake up the NFL. If those weren't enough, we had another mega deal get done. It was between Miami Dolphins and Kansas City Chiefs. Okay, uh, Miami acquired Pro Bowl wide receiver Tyreek Hill from the Chiefs in exchange for five draft picks. A first, a second, and a fourth round pick in this year's draft, as well as a fourth rounder and sixth rounder in next year's draft in 2023. Just an absolutely unbelievable trade. Um, as soon as that trade went down, the Dolphins immediately signed Tyreek Hill to a four-year, $120 million contract extension with $72 million of that guaranteed. And that's you, people ask, why did the Chiefs trade Tyreek Hill? It's because he was due for a contract extension that Kansas City simply was not going to be able to afford. Uh, when you have Mahomes making $50 million a year, Travis Kelsey and all those guys uh, on the rest of the offense and defense that they have signed, it's just 
they ran out of cap room, and so Miami had uh, almost $100 million in cap space, so they went ahead and spent it uh, pretty wisely so far this offseason. And the Dolphins, man, they are just locked and loaded for this year. Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell on the same team, same receiving core. I mean, my God, that is unstoppable. Both of those guys are 4-3 or sub-4-3-40 guys. Uh, yeah, speed for days. That team's going to be tough to beat because Miami made uh, another important signing that we'll get to here in a minute. But um, a couple more trades to go down, certainly not on the caliber of the others, but this one was the Atlanta Falcons and the Indianapolis Colts. Falcons traded their longtime franchise quarterback, Matt Ryan, to the Indianapolis Colts in exchange for a third-round pick in this year's draft. And in doing so, the Falcons are incurring a dead cap hit of $40.5 million this season, which is the largest dead cap hit in the history of the NFL by $7 million. And so with that, the Colts, they have found their new quarterback for 2022, and they just continue to play the quarterback carousel because Matt Ryan is their sixth different week one starting quarterback in the last six years. So uh, Indianapolis basically gets a flavor of the month, and um, they, you know, they go with who they can find that year. Uh, they have no real long-term plan at quarterback. So a great team otherwise, uh, just inconsistent spot there at the quarterback position, which is happens to be the most important and precisely why they missed the playoffs last year. But the final noteworthy trade uh, was between the Tennessee Titans and the Los Angeles Rams. And the Titans acquired wide receiver Robert Woods from the Rams in exchange for a 2023 sixth round pick. Now, Tennessee had released wide receiver Julio Jones a couple days prior to this deal going down. So uh, Robert Woods, when he gets medical clearance to return from his torn ACL that he suffered this past season, is going to step in immediately as the Titans' number two wide receiver behind A.J. Brown. So it's a good good trade for the Titans. Didn't really cost him much. And uh, Robert Woods, or Bobby Trees, as he's called, uh, will, will fit right in there behind uh, A.J. Brown. But this offseason so far has been absolutely the craziest NFL offseason that we've ever seen. Uh, just in this month, uh, the, the last four weeks, there have been nine high-profile players traded who have a combined 39 Pro Bowl selections. It's Russell Wilson, Carson Wentz, Khalil Mack, Amari Cooper, Yannick Ngakwe, Devontae Adams, Deshaun Watson, and Tyreek Hill. Nine guys, 39 Pro Bowl appearances, all have been traded. And we ain't even talked about, I mean, we mentioned it, you know, the Tom Brady coming out of retirement. Okay, staying retired for two months. Okay, this is by far the craziest NFL offseason that we have ever seen. And we just covered the, ma the major trades that went down this past week. But now that we got the, the trades out of the way, let's talk about the, the notable free agent signings that have happened. We'll start off with a re-signing. The Los Angeles Rams have uh, signed their quarterback, Matthew Stafford, to a four-year, $160 million contract extension. Stafford now is the sixth quarterback that averages $40 million per year on his contract. Just insane money, but he led the Rams to a Super Bowl last year, so I suppose you can say that he's worth it. Uh, the Miami Dolphins, I mentioned, we just talked about their huge trade they made. They beefed up their offensive line, too. They signed uh, offensive tackle Teron Armstead to a five-year, $87.5 million deal to be the uh, uh, you know, the anchor of that offensive line that's going to be need to be better for Tua Tagovailoa to hit those speedy receivers that they just got. So 
Um, the Dallas Cowboys, they have finally showed a little life in free agency. They have uh, signed wide receiver James Washington and linebacker slash DN Dante Fowler Jr., who's a former number three overall pick, to uh, one-year contracts. And they've also re-signed uh, linebacker Leighton Vander Esch, defensive end Dorrance Armstrong, and safety J. Ron Curse. So three important players on that defense they brought back, which is good. Uh, considering they lost Randy Gregory. The Carolina Panthers, they have re-signed wide receiver DJ Moore to a three-year extension, so he's tied to Carolina for the next four years at $73 million. The New Orleans Saints, they have re-signed quarterback Jameis Winston to a two-year deal. Kansas City Chiefs, they had signed wide receiver Juju Smith-Schuster to a one-year deal, uh, and that went down before the trade of Tyreek Hill. So Smith-Schuster steps in as their wide receiver one, along with uh, Nicole Hardman. Cincinnati Bengals continue to beef up their offensive line. They signed tackle Lyle Collins to a contract, and that's in addition to the other two offensive linemen that they've already signed. So they are definitely getting Joe Burrow some help. But the Bengals also re-signed corner Eli Apple to a one-year deal, and tight end Hayden Hurst to a one-year deal to replace C.J. Uzama, who bolted in free agency. Tampa Bay Buccaneers have re-signed running back Leonard Fournette to a three-year deal. Tennessee Titans signed tight end Austin Hooper to a one-year deal. The Atlanta Falcons, they signed running back Damian Williams to a one-year deal, and they re-signed running back slash wide receiver Cordero Patterson to a contract as well. So he's staying in Atlanta. And then to fix their quarterback solution that they, you know, that traded away Matt Ryan, they went ahead and signed quarterback Marcus Mariota to a two-year contract. Minnesota Vikings, they signed defensive ends to Darius Smith to a three-year, $42 million deal. And I mentioned that because Smith was originally reported to have signed with the Ravens, but that offer was only for four years and $35 million. So he backed out of that, signed with the Vikings for more money on less years. Carolina Panthers also re-signed corner Dante Jackson, three years, $35 million. Green Bay Packers re-signed corner Rasul Douglas to a three-year deal. He played really well down the stretch for them. was huge in their last several games. Philadelphia Eagles re-signed running back Boston Scott. Seattle Seahawks re-signed running back Rashad Penny. Uh, Denver Broncos, they have signed journeyman backup quarterback Josh Johnson to be Russell Wilson's backup. This is Josh Johnson's 14th NFL team. The dude's played for almost half the teams in the NFL, which is very impressive. Uh, the Los Angeles Chargers, they've signed Gerald Everett, tight end, to a contract. The Patriots of New England, they re-signed offensive tackle Trent Brown, and they signed corner Malcolm Butler. He used to be on the Patriots, of course, went um, was Super Bowl MVP not too long ago. He is back with the Patriots on a two-year deal. And then the Buffalo Bills, they made a couple of veteran signings, running back Duke Johnson, one-year deal, and wide receiver Jamison Williams to a one-year deal. So um, little, those are just the, the important, noteworthy free agent signings. There was also some non-free agency news, and it revolves around the NFL draft. So the scouting combine's over, and uh, all of the high-profile pro day workouts are over. So draft prep is in full swing. Got some terrible news out of the University of Michigan, though. Defensive end David Ajabo, who is 
widely projected as a top 15 to 20 pick in the draft, tore his left Achilles tendon during his pro day workout. So uh, just horrible news for him. Certainly going to affect his draft stock. Now, Ajabo's doctor did give a good diagnosis by saying that he expects Ajabo to have the same timeline of recovery that uh, Los Angeles Rams running back Cam Akers did, which was six months, which seemed like an anomaly. But uh, So it is possible that Ajabo only misses maybe the first month or two of the season. But uh, either way, it's going to be interesting to see how far he falls because I certainly don't think he's getting out of the second round either way. And then the last piece of NFL news deals with some broadcasting stuff. Last week I mentioned, uh, you know, talked about Joe Buck and Troy Aikman both leaving Fox and signing contracts with ESPN to take over the Monday Night Football broadcast. But uh, I also mentioned ESPN college football analyst Kirk Herbstreet was hired by Amazon to do the Thursday Night Football games while still also keeping his ESPN duties with college football. So, uh, Herb Street needed a partner. Well, this past week it was announced that the famous voice of Al Michaels has been hired by Amazon to take the other seat on that Thursday night football broadcast alongside Kirk Herb Street. So you'll have Al Michaels and Kirk Herb Street on your Amazon Thursday night football games coming up this year, which to me that's that seems like a home run duo. I love Al Michaels and I love Kirk Herb Street. And in the, the limited games that Herb Street has done here in the NFL, he's done fairly well. So I'm interested to see how that duo works. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League and cover the NHL's trade deadline that's passed. It was uh, this Monday, March 21st, is when the trade deadline was. And we had an absolute ton of trades and movement. In fact, there was an NHL record 33 trades involving 55 players and 28 draft picks that went down on Monday the 21st, on deadline day, which uh, all of those are a record. So it might seem like we're going to cover 33 trades, but uh, we're not. We're only covering the ones involving uh, some bigger-name players. The big one that went down that kind of was talked about for a while was the Philadelphia Flyers and the Florida Panthers. The uh, Panthers, sitting atop the Atlantic right now, certainly with a good chance to win the Stanley Cup, they went out and acquired uh, all-star forward Claude Giroux. Two prospects and a fifth-round pick in 2024 from the Flyers in exchange for the Panthers' top prospect in Owen Tippett, a third-round pick in next year's draft, and a first-round pick in 2024. So the Flyers, they obviously are nowhere close to the playoffs. They're definitely in rebuild mode, whereas Florida is in win-now mode. So it was a great move for both sides. The Flyers also traded away Derek Broussard to Edmonton for a fourth-round pick. So they're clearly selling. The Boston Bruins, they went out and they acquired defenseman Hampus Lindholm from the Anaheim Ducks in exchange for a first-round pick and second-round pick in next year's draft uh, and in 2024. Our first-round pick... 2023, second round pick in 23 and 24, and a couple of prospects. Okay, so Boston, again, much like Florida, knows that they can win this year. Um, They just need to go all in, and that's exactly what they did. They gave up three draft picks and two prospects for a a top four defenseman in Hampus Lindholm. And immediately after the trade, Hampus Lindholm agreed to an eight-year, $52 million contract extension with the Bruins. So, Good move there for Boston. Uh, Anaheim obviously clearly selling at this point. Got rid of 
all of their best players. They also traded forward Nick Delorier to the Minnesota Wild in exchange for a third-round pick in 2023. And Delorier actually scored the game-winning goal in his first game with Minnesota. Uh, Anaheim also traded forward Ricard Raquel to Pittsburgh in exchange for Zach Anton Reese, a prospect and a second-round pick. So Anaheim has a large surplus of draft capital starting in 2023, uh, and that's thanks to these moves. They got rid of all their best players with the exception of uh, Trevor Zegras and uh, John Gibson, their goalie. So we'll see uh, how the rebuild goes in Anaheim, but they got some good talent to start with and a bunch of draft picks. The Minnesota Wild made another big splash, too. They acquired goalie Marc-Andre Fleury from the Chicago Blackhawks in exchange for a conditional second-round pick that can become a first-rounder. Now, the condition on that, of course, Marc-Andre Fleury is 500-and-something career wins. I think it's like third all-time. <clears throat> you know, obviously, perennial all-star, three-time Stanley Cup champion, Vezina Trophy winner. So the Wild uh, got, you know... Uh, a, a high-class goalie in addition to Cam Talbot, who's played really well. Uh, the condition on that draft pick, though, is that if uh, the pick becomes a first-round pick, if the Minnesota Wild reach the Western Conference Final and Marc-Andre Fleury accounts for four or more wins in the first two rounds, all right, which would obviously happen if Minnesota made the conference championship or conference finals. But uh, Minnesota also, they since they have a goalie surplus, they traded goalie Capo Kakinen and a fifth-round pick to the San Jose Sharks in exchange for defenseman Jacob Middleton. All right, and the Toronto Maple Leafs, they acquired defenseman Mark Giordano and forward Colin Blackwell from the Seattle Kraken. Now, mind you, Giordano was the cap, uh, captain of the Kraken. Uh, so Toronto acquires those two guys in exchange for Second and third round picks this year, as well as a second round pick in 2023. Uh, good trade for the Leafs. They're they're another team that's in win now mode, and uh, Giordano is from Toronto, so he gets to go back home. Um, interesting move. You know, Seattle just continues. We'll see here in a minute. They just continue to sell everywhere. Uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning, back to back Stanley Cup champs, looking for a three peat. They went out and acquired uh, young forward Brandon Hagel and two fourth round picks from Chicago in exchange for a first-round pick in 2023, first-round pick in 2024, forward Taylor Radish, and another prospect. Now, Hagel has 24 goals this year. He's really legit young forward, and he'll slot right into that Tampa Bay lineup. And this trade also really uh, bolsters Chicago's rebuild with a couple of first-round picks, and it also reunites Taylor Radish with his former linemate in the uh, the OHL, and Alex Dabrinkit. So uh, interesting move there for the Lightning, who made another big move. They went out and acquired big forward Nick Paul from Ottawa in exchange for Matthew Joseph and a fourth-round pick. And Nick Paul scored in his first game with the Lightning as well. So instant, um, instant success there with Nick Paul and Tampa. The Columbus Blue Jackets, they traded Max Domi to the Carolina Hurricanes, another team in contention to win the Stanley Cup this year, and all it took was a prospect to get that done. So <clears throat> um, the Buffalo Sabres, they traded defenseman Robert Hag to Florida in exchange for a fifth-round pick. Uh, Hag is going to be the stopgap 
for uh, the time that Aaron Ekblad's out. We talked about him having an injury, being out for the rest of the regular season. Um, the Vancouver Canucks, they made two weird moves. So they traded defenseman Travis Hamanick to the Ottawa Senators in exchange for a third-round pick this year. Um, and then they went ahead and traded a third-round pick this year to Toronto in exchange for defenseman Travis Dermott. So they, they basically swapped defensemen and third-round picks. Um, so interesting sequence there. Uh, the Dallas Stars, they uh, made a couple of moves at the deadline. They acquired goalie Scott Wedgwood from the Arizona Coyotes in exchange for a conditional fourth-round pick in next year's draft. You know, rookie goalie Jake Ottinger has been pretty much a savior for the Stars, the only reason they have a chance to make the playoffs. And their veteran backup, Braden Holtby, is hurt. So the Stars needed an NHL-ready uh, backup for Ottinger. So they got one in Wedgwood. And they also went out and acquired forward Vladislav Nemestikov from the Detroit Red Wings in exchange for a fourth-round pick. So good move there. Nemestikov probably won't be any higher than the third or fourth line. But, uh, you know, he's another good good skill player for the Stars that um, continue to make a push for the playoffs. The New York Rangers, <clears throat> they, of course, they're – number two in the Metropolitan Division. And uh, they went out and got forward Andrew Kopp from the Winnipeg Jets, uh, also a sixth-round pick um, in exchange for uh, a prospect, a first- and second-round pick this year, and a fifth-round pick next year. So the Rangers gave up a lot to bring Andrew Kopp in, but uh, he'll probably slot right in on that second line there in New York. So pretty solid move for the Rangers, who, again, look to solidify their position. Then the Seattle Kraken. They just continued to sell outrageously high. Um, they traded defenseman Jeremy Lausanne to the Nashville Predators for a second-round pick this year. Lausanne was a big, good defenseman. Uh, he, he looked good in Seattle. Um, I've watched a lot of Kraken games this year, and Lausanne was really good. Uh, but the Kraken also traded forward Mason Appleton back to Winnipeg in exchange for a mid-round draft pick. Now, Seattle took Appleton from Winnipeg, in the expansion draft this past summer. So Winnipeg gets him back for a mid-round pick. Um, these trades that Seattle's making, uh, it's clear that they have no intention of competing for the next, say, three to five years. You know, Vegas took a win-now approach in their expansion draft, and they actually got to the Stanley Cup Finals in their inaugural season, but uh, that is the opposite approach here being used in Seattle. The Colorado Avalanche, they made a couple of moves. Of course, they've dominated the first half of the seat, well, first two thirds of the season, um, they acquired Fourier Arturi Lekkonen from the Montreal Canadiens in exchange for a second round pick and a defensive prospect. Good move, good scoring depth there for the Avs. They also got forward Andrew Cogliano from the San Jose Sharks in exchange for a fourth round pick. So, Avalanche getting some good, <clears throat> good uh, depth up front. Uh, St. Louis Blues they acquired. Couple of defensemen, Nick Letty and Luke Witkowski from the Detroit Red Wings in exchange for uh, center Oscar Sundquist, defenseman Jake Wallman, and a second round pick next year. So uh, St. Louis beefing up on defense there, two good additions. And then there's a trade that got announced that actually ended up getting recalled, and that was between Vegas and Anaheim. Vegas was set to trade Evgeny Dadanov to the Ducks for a second round pick. Uh, prospect and a contract that was expiring. But Dadanoff supposedly had a no-trade clause, but it was never disclosed to Vegas when they acquired him from Ottawa. So 
Anaheim was not aware of that, and the Ducks were, in fact, on his no-trade list. But the list never technically existed because it wasn't filed with the league. So they went back and forth, and the league actually ended up vetoing that trade. So that trade did not actually happen. But like I said, just a flurry of moves at the NHL trade deadline. Uh, lots of good moves. I, You know, this playoffs is going to be one of the more competitive playoffs we've seen in recent memory. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to see it. And, um, you know, it, you know, and, and the Stanley Cup playoffs are the best playoffs in any of the four major pro sports. And, uh, the moves that got made with all the contending teams this year just proves that that is going to be the case again this year. But we'll wrap up the Around the Island segment with some Major League Baseball news. Uh, free agency continues to be very active as opening day draws near, and it's April 7th. And we've had some more big free agent signings go down this past week. Uh, we're just going to cover a, a handful of them, certainly nothing. Uh, we're not going to list them all off, but uh Boston Red Sox, they made a big splash. They went out and signed shortstop Trevor Story to a six-year, $140 million deal. And this is interesting because the Red Sox have already have their elite shortstop in Xander Bogarts. Um, so I think Trevor Story, uh, I believe I read that he signed this contract knowing that he would be moving to second base instead of shortstop. So uh, Bogart stays at short. Trevor Story is going to be second base. And that's a damn good middle infield there in Boston. Uh, Minnesota Twins, they made a big splash, and this signing got actually took place overnight one day last week, kind of like a sneak attack in a way by the Twins. They signed shortstop Carlos Correa to a three-year, $105.3 million deal. That's $35 million per per season, average annual value of 35 That's ridiculous. Uh, but the deal also gives Correa an opt-out after each of the first two years. So he can basically stay in Minnesota as long as he wants for the next couple of years. If he wants to leave after this year, he can. Uh, but this trade actually gives the Minnesota Twins the two, the, the top two draft picks from the 2012 Major League Baseball draft. Carlos Correa was number one overall that year, and outfielder Byron Buxton was number two overall in that draft. And they have both of them on their team currently. So interesting note there. Um, the Philadelphia Phillies... They signed outfielder Nick Castellanos to a five-year, $100 million contract. Great hitter. Um, he's paired now with Bryce Harper in that outfield. Great lineup there for the Phillies. It also supplements the uh, signing that they made last week with, or two weeks ago with Kyle Schwarber at first base. So uh, the Phillies are getting ready to make some noise in the NL East. Uh, World Series MVP Jorge Soler signed a three-year $36 million deal with the Florida Marlins. Los Angeles Dodgers relief pitcher Kenley Jansen signed a uh, one-year $16 million deal with the Atlanta Braves. Remember, of course, Jansen was the closer for the World Series champion Dodgers uh, a couple years ago and um, just an elite closer when he's healthy. So he's he's going to the, uh, the defending World Series champion Atlanta Braves on a one-year deal at bolsters there are they already have a solid bullpen the Braves do and so Jansen there on the back end just really solidifies that and then the Detroit Tigers they signed veteran pitcher Michael uh, Pineda to a one-year deal uh, notable trade to go down the New York Yankees they traded first baseman Luke Voigt to the San Diego Padres in exchange for a pitching prospect 
the one that they traded was one of the higher-rated prospects in the Padres system. So uh, once the Yankees re-signed Anthony Rizzo, you knew Luke Voigt was going to be on his way out, and that's exactly what happened. But we do have one piece of non-free agency news in Major League Baseball. Um, we talked, you know, last couple episodes about the new collective bargaining agreement and what it all meant and what the, the positive um, things were from that. And one of them that I had mentioned was removing the ghost runner to start extra innings. Well, this past week, Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association have now agreed to bring back the ghost runner for 2022. So this means that all the extra innings will feature a ghost runner starting on second base for each start of the half innings. All right, so there'll be a runner on second to start each half of the extra innings, and it's, you know, I, I get the intent is to speed up the game and not have, you know, 18-inning games, but um, it just, it seems very, very odd. Uh, it's like, it's like you know, giving a team kind of a, an advantage, but both teams get to do it. It's just, it's just funky when you start an inning off with a runner on second, just for scoring purposes, you know. Um, so I'm not necessarily a huge fan of that, but um, I get that the MLB wants to speed up the game. So the Ghost Runner is returning for this season. Um, some, we'll, we'll actually zip over real, real quick back over to college basketball. There were a couple head coaching hires since the uh, March Madness tournament has began. Uh, Maryland, they have hired former Seton Hall coach Kevin Willard as their new head coach. Willard went 225 and 161 in 12 seasons at Seton Hall. Uh, Seton Hall has been a fixture in this March Madness tournament, having missed it only once since 2015. LSU, they hired Murray State head coach Matt McMahon to be their new head coach. McMahon, you knew this was going to happen. Uh, McMahon was going to get a big job. He's gone 154 and 67 in only seven seasons at Murray State. He's took him to three NCAA tournament appearances. He's won four out of the last five Ohio Valley Conference titles. And, of course, he was the head coach at Murray State when NBA phenom John Morant was there just several years ago. Uh, McMahon's a fantastic coach. Uh, You knew he was going to get a big job, and so he ends up landing at LSU. And then South Carolina, they've hired Chattanooga head coach Lamont Paris to be their new head coach. And, of course, you remember Chattanooga we talked about a while ago. Uh, they had a great season. They almost upset Illinois in the first round as a 13 seed, just 45 seconds away from from pulling that upset off. So um, that put Ch- uh, Chattanooga on the map and got Lamont Paris hired in South Carolina. But the only other piece of news is kind of a generic piece, uh, and that comes basically from New York City, right? Uh, the mayor had implemented a vaccine, you know, the the vaccine mandate to where. Um, you can't participate in sporting events if you're not vaccinated. Basically, the reason Kyrie Irving has only been able to play in road games is because of this mandate. Well, uh, the mayor of New York City is rolling back that mandate, so it will no longer be active. So that means that um, Brooklyn Nets will be able to have Kyrie Irving in their lineup for home games. And it also means that the unvaccinated New York Yankees and New York Mets players are now able to play in their home games, which is perfect because the season's about to start here in a couple of weeks. So perfect timing for this because the Nets need Kyrie Irving in all of their games, not just their road games. So um, NBA season has got, you know, 10 games left. So uh, they'll need him for the playoffs as well. So 
interesting piece of news there. I think New York might be the last last city to uh, to arrive at the party on that, but uh, nonetheless, that that requirement is gone. So, uh, but that is going to wrap up the uh, 68th episode of Sports Island, and uh, another fantastic weekend in sports. Of course, men's college basketball. We have the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight, and a uh, great golf tournament in Austin. The World Golf Championship Dell Technology Match Play. Be sure and tune into that. And then, of course, uh, the NBA season's coming down to the to the end, and uh, we got spring training baseball going on at the same time. All this is happening too. So, lots to get into next week. Uh, check back in with us, and uh, we'll get you caught up on everything that went down this weekend. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.